So, Ed, Brian, I want you all to consider just for a second the big, long history of reparations and really how diverse different reparations claims are. It it might surprise us to hear the following clip from one of our most decorated 20th century civil rights activists. At the very same time that America refused to give the Negro any land, through an act of Congress, our government was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. But not only did they give the land, they built land-grant colleges with government money to teach them how to farm. Not only that, they provided county agents to further their expertise in farming. Not only that, they provided low interest rates in order that they could mechanize their farms. Not only that, today many of these people are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies not to farm, and they are the very people telling the black man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And this is what we are faced with. And this is a reality. Now, when we come to Washington in this campaign, we are coming to get our check. So that was from 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s last formal political action as part of the Poor People's Campaign. Yeah, one of the things that's so powerful about the King quote is how much he reminds us that it is about repair that mistakes or blindnesses at the beginning made it seem invisible, out of sight. Uh, when the, the Homestead Act, it doesn't feel racialized uh, to white mm-hmm. people when they're doing that. But now anything that's making amends for the, those blindnesses has to sound like repair rather than something positive. And so it, it's the language itself, in some ways, is pulling against the, the sense of justice that King was talking about, right? To, you have to point out that there's no reparation without understanding what was damaged. And so it's not merely labor that was lost, wealth that was not accrued, but acts of the government that actively undercut African-American efforts at economic improvement. So I think that one way to think about this is that rather than making reparations just about all of the past, let's Mm. make it the government addressing things that the government had done in an earlier time. It it seems to me that that would kind of focus the, the debate in a way that people would have a clearer sense of just exactly what was at stake. The line that I think was really just galvanizing for me was when you had the founder of the Rosewood Foundation, Lizzie Jenkins, talking about it not being about compensation but recognition. And in some ways, and this is is not in any way to foreclose a discussion of financial payments or compensation, but I do think there is something to be said about the need to at least begin a discussion that acknowledges that there was an immoral act that, you know, claimed people's lives, foreclosed futures, snatched land when they did acquire it. I mean, there's a lot that can be done just at the level of re-narrating in a public-facing way the history of slavery, Reconstruction, and Jim Crow that simply has not happened. I absolutely agree with you on that, Nathan. But I would also add what I consider to be the other half of the obstacle, which is paying reparations 
kind of acknowledges that we haven't closed the gap, that we haven't made up for that history that you just referred to, and the willingness to acknowledge the disadvantage that millions of Americans face today because of acts in the past is the other half Mm. of the calculation that, in my opinion, leads people to resist reparations. Now, I disagree with that position, Mm -hmm. but I think we have to confront both the history and the acknowledgement that that history has produced the kinds of inequalities we face today before we can really effectively expect to win a reparations debate. And part of this, too, is that this is not just one big sin, but it's a series of sort of telescoping sins. Mm -hmm. You think about the Georgetown 272 effort, and what they're directing that money toward are the communities in Louisiana where the descendants lived for so long and doing things like providing eyeglasses for the, the people there who otherwise wouldn't have them. You know, if you think about this immoral set of acts unfolded across the entire landscape of the United States and across the entire expanse of American history, it's almost as if we need to take it apart before we can name each particular part of immorality. So I think, you know, The people in the 20th century can look at housing markets and realize that was across the entire United States. They can look at school segregation. But then a large part of the nation's history was embedded in the South. And not only slavery, but then the century of segregation with the sanction of the state is also uniquely Southern. So in some ways, you think about to whom should reparation be paid? Mm -hmm. It's interesting for me to think about the Georgetown example, that they are paying it not only to individuals, but to the communities where those individuals lived and where their disadvantages were made manifest. So in some ways, to understand the problem is as if we had to take it apart. Again, I thought that was what was so powerful about King, is he was taking apart and talking about very specific things that people did. I think maybe that might be a way for people to comprehend exactly what the repairs are for and to. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, it's impossible to compensate a family that was broken apart by the internal slave trade, right? How do you compensate? How do you turn that into a dollar amount? How do you even talk about the, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who were, say, killed under terrorism and as, you know, whites were reclaiming the South after the end of Reconstruction? These are absolutely incalculable sums. Now, now I do appreciate someone like, you know, Professor Darity, who is trying to take, say, the 40 acres and a mule, give it a certain interest rate, you know, flash forward and say, let's come up with some kind of dollar amount. But I do think, as with any form of financial compensation, that it's largely going to be symbolic. And, And I do think that the symbolism is something that we have a very hard time wrestling with and grappling with. Um, and I wonder if, if one of the things about this moment now relative to electoral politics is actually about that symbolism. I mean, we know how, you know, political parties have used, for instance, the idea of the NASCAR dad or the silent majority or the welfare queen. I mean, the people speak in symbolic terms all the time when they're trying to mobilize different parts of the electorate. And I, and I wonder if one of the challenges here is that you almost have in your mind, you know, a, a kind of thin or, you know, vague 
image of the black family that is simply going to get, quote-unquote, the check in the mail, and that is not something that everybody can really get behind. It's not a rallying cry or a symbol that really helps to animate people in a 2020 or 2024 or what have you. Nathan, I certainly hope that we're not going to have to choose between getting the history right and uh, financial compensation. I hope that we can have both of them together. But I'd love for you to elaborate Mm -hmm. on the genuine concern that sometimes stroking a check can make it seem like we've resolved the whole problem and we don't really have to talk about it anymore. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is not even um, an abstract or philosophical debate. I mean, when when you look at the politics of the 1980s and 90s, when people were asking for affirmative action, and it should be said for for the record that affirmative action is in, in many ways an, an effort to redress history when it was first conceptualized. But one of the opponents of affirmative action would say things like, "You guys got the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. Right. You have nothing left to say. You have no, no other claims to make. There's no other argument." one can make about inequality. I mean, it literally was an argument about telling people to stay quiet because they got something from the government in major legislation. And and I have to imagine that anything that would be formally identified as, you know, in a a very on-the-nose way as reparations would have as one of the consequences this same assumption that if you get something from us by way of redress or compensation, that then means in return we get your silence about the history, about further claims in the present day. And that's always a very dangerous proposition to find oneself in because I think one of the most powerful relationships that African Americans have to the country is a claim on its history, is a claim to the founding, is a claim to the prosperity, it's a claim to the workings and the evolution of democracy. You know, certainly on you know, cultural claims and political claims and economic claims all bound up together. There's a way in which I think people would be much more inclined if they could get some guarantee that, you know, black folk would be quiet about <laughs> the past in ways that don't fit a mainstream vision, that they would be very much inclined to just give a kind of token gesture that, and, and call it reparations in the meantime. So in that regard, it would look almost like a private legal settlement with uh, non-disclosure act included. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and I don't know of anybody who's willing to, to, to sign on to something like that. I also want to say, too, I mean, you know, this is something that I think, you know, Ed had mentioned that the housing issue in the 20th century, and and it's easier for that than maybe the slavery issue of the 19th century. Um, But I do think there are ways that we could absolutely reverse engineer some of the most discriminatory practices of the 20th century and just simply say, like, look, we're going to concentrate resources in areas that are concentrated African-American poverty and institutions that have historically moved against admitting people from Af- of African-Americans into their, you know, um, educational institutions or, you know, employment institutions and the like. There are ways where we can concentrate and think through mass incarceration, evictions. I mean, all of these inequalities are so concentrated and identifiable. Public health outcomes, I mean, you can give, you know, increased spending to areas that are suffering from diabetes and high blood pressure. And again, you know, poverty and race certainly correlate, but there are ways to think about isolating the variables of race geographically. That could be part of a reparations policy. But again, it would require a level of intentionality that would also then require building and moving the political apparatus through Congress necessarily to get it to do that. You know, as a historian, I have to be heartened by the fact that 
history doesn't really fade away in its significance. The things that we're talking about are not the things that are just most proximate to us in time, but things that are most foundational. Slavery, reconstruction, segregation. Those things are not just going to fade away with the passage of time appears. Instead, they come back in new guises. So, you know, those of us who think about the past for a living have to be kind of perversely encouraged that people are going to need to know the details. It actually mattered what 40 acres a mule actually was. What did it mean uh, for us to be able to have these conversations? So, it just shows us that there's always going to be the need for us to have a clear-eyed understanding of the history that got us to this place. And that history, in this case, runs way back in American history.